Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. I am Megan Baker Sewen. Lauren Malika. Lauren Malika. You only have one last name. Just one. I technically have three. Yay! (laughs) Woo! Yes, so we have some folks on line with us today. They joined in on our live recording. We're very excited, especially because we're celebrating our anniversary. We're celebrating the one-year anniversary of Spooky Psych. Our first live show was June 30th of 2019. was the Psychology of Serial Killers, which we later recorded and made a podcast. But that is where our little journey began. Yes. Yeah, so now it's now it's grown. Where were our downloads at when you checked, Megan? We are at ten thousand seven hundred and sixty-three downloads as of right couple minutes ago. So thank you all. We also had a huge jump in downloads after I specifically requested people download when they listen. So thank you all for listening to me. Well, that's I very appreciate nice. that. That does help our metrics if we are trying to potentially get uh, get monetized, make some more money off of this. Everything goes off of downloads, not streams. So please continue to download when you listen. Delete it afterwards. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> we don't care. Do. I just appreciate the, the addition to our metrics. If you're already listening, help us out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So much. So since we have live audience, should we do... More of our classic old school intro. Just add some information about us. Lauren, why don't you go first? Just introduce myself? Say some things about yourself. Okay. Tell the kind people who you are. All right. Well, (laughs) (laughs) my name is Lauren Malika. Um, I am a marriage and family therapist who specializes in trauma and PTSD. Um, I work a lot with women's issues, LGBTQ folks. Um, all of that stuff. And, uh, like I said, you know, I specialize in trauma work. I, I use a type of therapy called EMDR with the majority of my clients. And it really helps a lot of people, um, before becoming a therapist, um, I went to school for psychology. I was part of the psychology lab for a number of years where we researched emotion regulation and temperament in infants and toddlers. And that was very interesting. And Megan and I have plenty of stories from that. Um, Aside from working in private practice, which I do now, and I am going to be an adjunct psych professor this fall. So I'm very excited about that. Um, before I did that, I worked in residential facilities. I worked um, in uh, temporary housing for people with schizophrenia. Um, I've worked in domestic violence shelters, crisis hotlines, stuff like that. So that's kind of my background. How about you, Megan? Great. My name is Megan. Baker Sewen or Megan Quarles Baker Sewen. I just keep collecting last names at this point. I don't know which ones to use right now, but we'll throw them all out there. I am a licensed clinical social worker, went to school for psychology for my bachelor's, met Lauren in that research lab where we did emotion temperament regulation nonsense, and uh, it was a good time. It was mostly a good Mostly. <laughs> Overall, a good time. Had its moments. Um, 
months. Then I went to U of I, got a master's in social work with an emphasis on mental health and a further emphasis on childhood trauma. I work in the same private practice as Lauren because life keeps bringing us back together in beautiful ways. It's meant to be. It is. It really is. And uh, I work more with the kids teens and young adults lately more with the young adults than the kids just i think because of the nature of telehealth going upwards i also specialize in trauma anxiety depression the lgbtq plus community and uh women's issues i throw women's issues in there as well yeah um so i do trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy with kids i will do cognitive behavioral therapy with adults and yeah yeah. I don't really know what else to add, except uh, a year ago today, Lauren and I were getting oh, ready you should, for our first one. You should what say we... something about uh, the forensic work you did. Oh, right. Yeah, it's been a year and I kind of forget that I did. <laughs> I think it's, it's cool that you did that. Um, so it's really interesting because in my five and a half year career as a social worker i have done clinical forensic and medical social work so i just like to do everything quite frankly uh my forensic experience i was the i had lots of jobs at that job but ultimately the the forensic and clinical supervisor of an agency in the children's advocacy center i personally have interviewed approximately 200 children about abuse and violent crime allegations so I am very passionate about crime victims and working with them and their trauma, and I will also get very opinionated on topics regarding forensic social work and the police. Side note, for all of you who have seen the memes where it's the naked guy with the sword and they're like, want to know how a social worker would handle that situation? That is peak social work. We have all handled naked people coming at us if you've ever worked in a hospital. Lauren, have you... Did you deal with that in your residential experience at all? Absolutely. Lots of lots of nakedness. Lots of knives. Yeah. Lots of knives. You know, I think it's the people who are taking the reducing funding for the police and doing funding for the mental health. And they're like, what are mental health workers going to do? And it's like, we have all de-escalated. We've done this. <laughs> and we did not. So I think we could train more people. So, oh, for sure. Done a lot of. I'm very passionate about forensics in general, specifically forensic social work, mental health stuff, all of that, and kids. Thank you, thank you. Beautiful. So yeah, so that's about us and why we're here talking about this stuff. Yeah. Um, we're gonna start kind of with uh. So yeah, so today. As we kind of mentioned before, we're going to discuss the psychology of murder. 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 And, uh, I mean, with anything, we just want to throw in some trigger warnings. Trigger uh, warning for murder. First, for murder. Uh, big one right there. Yeah. <laughs> yep. There's going to be some spicy content for that. Um, A lot of murder-based content in this murder episode. Yes. So just just be aware if you need to take a second, it's okay to pause and take care of yourself. Yeah. Um, Lauren, is there anything else in the story you're telling that you want to tack on to that uh, warning? warning? Yeah, I don't know if yours... I don't know how dark yours gets. It doesn't get too dark. I guess, like, if you're uncomfortable about hearing about child abuse. 
it's briefly, <laughs> briefly. Child abuse, yes. We're going to touch on it for a second and then hop away from it. So, yeah. I'll also add uh, child abuse and political assassinations. Okay. As little trigger warnings, I don't think there are all that many people who have a strong trigger for political assassinations, but some people might. So we'll just throw that in their general trigger warning. Um, I cannot think of anything else for this one. No, neither can I. So just know if if you need to take a second, it's okay. If you need Please support, do. we're here. We're um, here. We'll help you find somebody you can talk to. Yeah. All right. So let's get into the meat of it, shall we? Please. Thank you. All right. So the psychology behind why people murder. So first and foremost, um, I wanted to introduce you guys to a researcher named James Garbarino. He is a PhD. Um, He did most of his research at Penn State. Um, so he's a very important guy when it comes to the understanding of why people kill people. Um, in 1992, his career started with this um, when he was asked to testify at his, as an expert witness in a child abuse case that ended with a mother killing her child. Um, so that was the first of more than 60 murder cases in which he helped judges and juries understand the psychology behind why people kill people and helps them make more informed decisions about a defendant's guilt and punishment, which I feel like, yeah, that makes sense why you would want somebody with that background to kind of come in and speak about it. Um, So according to the research that he has done, he found that most killers are untreated, traumatized children who are controlling the actions of the quote-unquote scary adults they have become. So it's basically very traumatized people that have not gotten treatment. Um, Garbarino has said that he believes the general public see the results of the trauma rather than where it started or the murderer's origins. Um, most of what's been done in the past in these cases is either what's called is either related to their trauma or what's called their social history. So just, you know, things in their life that they experienced, um, certain areas they may have grown up in, you know, all of these things kind of play a role in why people kill people. And I would Uh, just like to throw out the uh, disclaimer we always put, is that even though murderers are very likely to have a tra- traumatic childhood most people with a traumatic childhood will never kill people exactly. so always need to throw that out there thank you megan this is very true very true um okay so another issue that is a leading cause to why people kill people is issues in attachment style and i could talk about attachment all day but we don't have that kind of time so um To kind of break it down briefly, attachment style is one of the most important factors for raising emotionally healthy children. It involves them feeling a secure attachment style with their caregiver. And a secure attachment style comes from children experiencing what interpersonal neurobiology expert Dr. Dan Siegel, so he's like the, you know, top guy for research and attachment he calls them the four s's so one they must feel safe in their environment two they must feel seen for who they really are three they must feel soothed 
or calmed when in distress. And four, they must feel secure with their caregiver. And those are the four things um, that most kids with secure attachment with their caregiver experience. Now, if a child doesn't feel this way, it could lead to an insecure attachment style. Again, that doesn't indicate like you're going to be a murderer, but it could play a role in just that type of a thing. Um, another part to kind of bring up is developmental psychology and how that can play a role. Um, it helps unpack a lot of the clinical diagnoses associated with murders. So severe, pervasive, chronic trauma in early childhood is such a frontal assault on the basic processes of child development that it ends up disrupting attachment, emotion regulation, so that ability to regulate your emotions and calm down when you need to calm down, and executive functioning. Um, trauma gets compounded by the neighborhoods that many of these people grow up in too, so we really have to think about environment as well. Um, this is actually a quote from Garbarino, so the guy who studies all this stuff. He said, I began to hear from these killers that they had developed a hypersensitivity to threat. That comes from being traumatized, having to be watchful. Another dimension is the lit- legitimization of aggression. The belief that when you're threatened, you're morally entitled and psychologically required to defend yourself. In the extreme form, there's a belief in preemptive assault. Get them before they get you. When you put together hypervigilance and a belief in preemptive assault, you get a war zone mentality. And I think that's such a great quote kind of explaining what, you know, how people who end up actually killing people are wired, kind of that war zone mentality and that hypersensitivity to the world around them. Um, I think that's a huge important factor. Um, Another thing that he had said was, what differentiates us is the incredible physical, cultural, and psychological availability of guns. If you listen to killers, you hear how their possession of guns and their enemies' possessions of guns means that at almost any conflict, which in another context would be resolved in minor injury, can end up being lethal. So that's another important factor, too, is, you know, the availability of weapons as well, because you know, as he mentioned, a lot of things can be handled, you know, either like verbally or, you know, you might beat somebody up, but it doesn't end in somebody dying. So that's another important part to keep in mind. I think it's the specific kind of working together of people having these childhoods and having these traits and having guns on top of it. If you are prone to kind of pushing the violence in a situation and you have a weapon you are significantly more likely to use it and at that point things become a lot more dangerous because you know you're not just punching someone in the face right it's just still not escalating very quickly yes um there is another person um that i wanted to mention as i was doing his research doing this research um and his name was father greg boyle And he is the founder of Homeboy Industries, who works closely with Los Angeles gang members. And a quote from him that I thought was important is, No kid is ever seeking anything when they join a gang. Kids are always fleeing something. And I feel like that's so important to keep in mind, is that usually when people kind of join communities like that, it's because it's better than whatever situation they're leaving from. Mm -hmm. 
So, another factor, and I know Lauren and I have mentioned this several times, and we're gonna keep talking about it, um, is the idea that killers are psychopaths, and ultimately, maybe 1% can be confidently diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Again, being a psychopath is not necessarily disorder, more like a series of personality traits that inform your behavior, but ultimately, with the actual diagnosis, which people are more likely to get when they have psychopathic tendencies and also have committed crimes, you really have to have committed crimes to get the antisocial personality disorder diagnosis is only about 1% of the population. So we kind of have this idea that like all killers are psychopaths and that's just, it's not true at all. Um, you know, a child of somebody with antisocial personality disorder is more likely to get it, but it's not like a definitive inheritance. It just increases the likelihood um, but ultimately, they've done brain scans, and there are pretty significant differences between people with antisocial personality disorder and people without it from a neurological standpoint. Um, and really, the big key factor is always and has always been the inability to perceive or register emotions from other people. You know, with those brain scans, it seems like people with antisocial personality disorder lack the ability to, like, look at a person's face and figure out what they're feeling, and often might believe that they don't have real feelings. Um, that's a psychopathic tendency that people will have, the lack of empathy, the lack of understanding that people do have feelings. <laughs> so, people with antisocial personality disorder, they just cannot, from facial mimicking, really perceive another person's emotions they can like understand it theoretically and use it to manipulate people but they're not really good at picking up that information or really registering other people's you know opinions and emotions as real they're more of only see it as something that they can use to their benefit um, right. Again, not always murdery benefit. Sometimes it's like a business thing. Sometimes it's like you can use it to succeed or other things, but sometimes it's a crime thing too. There's a really good video on YouTube and I'm trying to remember who. So it's this guy and he goes and he interviews different people with like neurotypical diversity basically. And he interviews um, this boy with antisocial personality disorder. And it's really interesting because he talks about exactly that. Like, knowing why things function the way they do and that ability to kind of, like, manipulate to get what you want, but not actually experiencing the true empathy from it. Mm -hmm. And I have to think of what the video is called, but it's really cool. It sounds interesting. So if yeah. you think about it, we'll loop it in somewhere. Okay. Okay, so now I'm going to throw out some research that I found in the book Evil, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Side by Julia Shaw. Julia is a researcher um, and a therapist who primarily works in false memory. She's got a PhD. And, uh, but I'm not really going to talk about her research. This is entirely research that she talks about in her book, so I'm going to throw a lot of names at you. Um, so really, what is fascinating. And I love this. One of the first studies they talk about in the book 
The Dark Side of Social Encounters, a 2011 paper, is by uh, Martin Rainman and Philip Zimbardo, Philip Zimbardo of the Stanford Prison Experiment fame is still doing research and honestly good for him. I'm glad that didn't end his career because he had some good ideas just really implemented poorly in that experiment. So the ethics weren't awesome. The ethics were not great, um, but it appears that this this paper that he wrote appears to just mainly be other research and a bit more ethically sound. So good for you, Zimbardo. Hope you're doing well. Um, so in The Dark Side of Social Encounters, they're trying to establish parts of the brain that are responsible for evil. So two things, they say the two processes are de-individuation and dehumanization. So de-individuation happens when we feel like we are anonymous. You will see this a lot with people saying things online that they would never say to a person's face. But when you're online, you're a bit more anonymous, even if the person knows who you are. You're not physically with them, so you have a bit of de-individuation. Like, you're kind of just in it. You're not, like, an individual person. Um, can also happen a bit with uh, mob mentality, as sure. they call it. Large groups together, you tend to lose your individual identity, and we'll just go with the flow a bit more. Um, dehumanization is when we stop seeing other people as human beings. Some people never see other people as human beings. Some people, we just see them as less. Um, and it has to do with the blurring of our perception. So, they feel like de-individuating. That's a harsh word It's to a say. tricky one. You got tricky it, Tricky word. Thank you. And dehumanization um, could involve the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, and several brainstem structures. That's right, we're going into neurobiology. Brain. favorite study, uh, and also the only test I've ever failed in my life. So I'm clearly the most qualified <laughs> person to be talking <laughs> about this right now. Um, just not good at remembering all the brain structures. There's so many That's of okay. them. That's okay. So I can help you if you need help. I think I got this stuff. Okay. I got it's. They get weird ones on those tests. They're trying to trick you. Yes. Um. So specifically, there's something called, you know, the VMPFC is what they're calling the specific neural pathway that they feel is responsible for the de-individuation and the de. Humanization. Now, for those of you who remember the Stanford prison experience, it sounds like Zimbardo was trying to study what the fuck happened in that experiment because it went down super quickly because nobody was humans anymore. So they're looking into this pathway, and what they think is that, like, okay, trying to find the right spot in my line. Um, there's a decrease of activity in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Reduced activity in that is linked with aggression and poor decision making, which can lead mm -hmm. to antisocial behavior. So, the de decreased activity is then accompanied by an increase in the amygdala, the emotion part of the brain, which can like increase your anger and fear response. And then, increase in the amygdala and then it goes to the brainstem, which will trigger your increased heart rate, blood pressure, and gut feelings, which essentially forces you into fight or flight. And what they've found 
is that research is showing that murderers and psychopaths have the decreased activity in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex that is causing this to happen. So they're finding that there actually is, to a certain extent, this neurological pathway that is heavily contributing to the behaviors. Not everyone who has that does end up becoming a killer, but they're a bit- There's a connection. There's a connection. And even more interestingly, they were talking about, and I will have to read the book, um, which I believe is called The Psychopath Inside Me. Um, this Ooh. guy who was studying it was looking at a bunch of brain scans and had his own brain scan in the mix and found through his cool. own brain scan that he has this. I've heard of this. Because didn't he come up with the scale? He, with what scale? Like, uh, the antisocial... The psychopath test? Yeah. I don't think so. I think that's a different guy, because he found out later he was, technically, he scored higher on the scale, but during his own research, he found that he has this pathway decrease. Yeah. And then he found out through family history that while he's never killed anyone, he does have several, I think he said at least 11 family members who are most likely have killed someone. So he's seeing through research going back that most likely he does have this predisposition. And so he's talked about how it's impacted his own life, having it, but not actually taking it all the way to murder. Because ultimately, these findings are really interesting. Yeah. But. And important. They're important. They're not indicative, though, and there is a difference between the people who have this pathway activation and never kill people and people who have it and will. Right. So, and then a research update on something that Lauren has talked about in the past. Lauren has talked about the dark triad, which is the identification of personality traits that are indicative of a, quote, dark personality, which sounds very death metal. Quite very metal. Very metal, the dark personality. Um, Doesn't necessarily mean that you are a killer at all, but some people who have dark personalities and have these traits are more likely to commit certain violent crimes or just kind of be an asshole compared to people without them. But new research is making an argument for the dark tetrad, not the dark triad. So... We're going to take it a step deeper here. Um, This is all from a 2017 meta-analysis of neuroimaging on psychopaths and all of these things. The brains seem to be different than dark psychopaths, and there's different brain... Yeah, there's different... Oh, that's still part of the last one. I'll just edit that out. Sorry, guys. When you listen to the finished podcast, you miss all of the times when we mess it up that we later delete to make <laughs> ourselves seem smarter. But you're with us, so you know what's going on. You know the truth. Um, But, anyway, so with the dark tetrad, there are a few key personality traits that indicate that somebody is more likely to become a murderer and have a dark personality. So one is narcissism. So I think we all intrinsically know what a narcissist is, right? But there's two types of narcissism, grandiose and vulnerable. So grandiose narcissists are show-offs. 
they're egotistical, they're assertive. Vulnerable narcissists are complaining, bitter, and defensive. So they're narcissists as a response to their deep inner security. And narcissistic vulnerability is a strong driver of rage. So people with yeah. vulnerable narcissism are more likely to actually engage in these actions because they're a bit more... They don't really believe they're that great, so they'll respond to a threat to their greatness with rage. Versus a grandiose narcissist, there is nothing you can do or say that will convince them that they're not as great as they think they are. So they really don't care that much if you disagree. Right. Um, so it's a driver of rage, hostility, and aggressive behavior, which is fueled by suspiciousness, dejection, and angry rumination. So masking your insecurities with narcissism, bit of a red flag. Yes. Uh, then... There is Machiavellianism. Basically, mm, the, love the, that. the end justifies the mean, a disregard for morality, and focus on self-interest or personal gain. So that is very common in psychopaths or people with antisocial personality disorder. Um, but not everyone who has that is actually going to harm anyone. Think about people with Machiavellianism, I think a lot of CEOs have Machiavellianism uh, some yeah. traits they'll do like what they, they need to do they to do things money. Yeah, exactly. they, they don't care they'll fire you or underpay you to, in order to make as much money as possible for themselves so there's that then there's psychopathy right? lack of emotion, lack of empathy that's another one and the new one so those three are the dark triad what takes it to the dark tetrad is sadism is sadism and they talk a lot about non-clinical sadism so sadism is the enjoyment of other people's pain or inflicting pain on others so we'll think most of the time when we talk about sadism we talk about sexual sadism that's only one type there's lots of different types and sadism is not an uncommon trait and i think we tend to think of the extremes but there's non-clinical sadism, which is not quite as severe as some of the other times. And then there's something that they call everyday sadism. And things like laughing at another person's misfortune, which I think everybody has done at least once in their life. Or like somebody YouTube video. Right, or somebody you really dislike has something, like fails a test or something, and they're really upset and you kind of laugh at it. Right? Yeah. That is, in nature, a bit sadistic. Um, an example that I brought up is yesterday we were watching a little video, and these people <laughs> had worked to rescue a lizard. And uh, this lizard, they released it back into the wild. They just kind of, they're rehoming this lizard. The people look so excited they're visiting it. And the lizard promptly runs directly into the street and gets run over by two cars. Oh, great. Right? So, like, it's kind of a funny video. <laughs> but it's also kind of sadistic to laugh at that, right? Because you're laughing at this poor lizard's death. And so it's things like that. That's like everyday sadism, right? Where you are yeah. kind of laughing at the misfortune. You might not be causing it. But you do delight in it just a little bit. And that's actually a pretty normal personality trait. Um, I, If any of you watched Gossip Girl, 
ever. I'm watching it for the first time because quarantine is melting my brain and I needed something mindless. And every single character on that show is a sadist without yes. fail. All of the, like, I'm going to scheme to ruin their life. It's like, you're a sadist. You're enjoying this. You think you're funny. But you're not murdering anyone. You're not, like, physically harming people. Which is the more clinical sadism. But you're engaging in social aggression for another person's misfortune. And you're delighting it, which is inherently sadistic. So that's what they're adding into the dark triad to make it the dark tetrad or at least there's a push to do it is adding subclinical sadism into it because you know all of these traits in and of themselves a lot of people have them to some level right they're not inherently bad they don't inherently mean you're a murderer a lot of people might right. have a tendency towards it but they realize that that's not like a decision they want to make so they have that urge and then they're like nope i'm gonna be nice instead perfectly valid but the more you have these four traits and the more strongly you have them the more likely you are to engage in antisocial behavior such as murder sexual assault any of those things yep. but lauren tell yes. us a story about a killer please all right here's the tea guys <laughs> so here is the tea <laughs> Is it's the tea hot. hot? Okay. It's piping hot. The only question I have about the tea. Okay. It's piping hot. Ready? Piping All right. Hot. So I'm going to talk to you guys about Pedro Rodriguez Filho. Has anyone heard of him? Show of hands. No one. You have. Excellent. I okay. only have because the day after I read her slideshow presentation... And he was like, oh, what's Lauren doing? And I read through it, and I started a podcast right when they were talking about him. So that is the only reason that I know is from, oh, God, what is the podcast Which called? Which one? Um, Time Suck, the episode Killer Kids. Ah. Time Suck is great. Everyone should give it a listen. It's really good. Yes. yes. Okay. So this fella, his name is Pedro Rodriguez Filho, a.k.a. Killer Petey. Um, so... This guy was born on a farm in Santa Rita do Sucai, Brazil. Um, he was <laughs> so he was born in Brazil. He was born uh, with a bruised skull as a result of his father kicking his mother's pregnant stomach during a fight, which is horrifying. So obviously, wow. he had super rough beginnings. Um, so. In my research, it was stated that basically he had indicated that the first time he had ever wanted to kill somebody was when he was 13. Um, he was in a fight with an older cousin, and he pushed the cousin into a sugarcane press, and it almost killed him, but he did not succeed. Um, at 14, he ended up killing the deputy mayor by shooting him in front of the city hall. And the reason that he did this is because he had fired his father, who was a school guard at the time, um, and had accused his father of stealing food from the school's kitchen. Um, and then what this kid did, Pedro, he ended up killing a security guard who he suspected to be the actual thief of the food. Just kind of interesting. All right. So then... 
Rodriguez took refuge in the greater Sao Paulo area. Um, he began robbing drug dens and killing human traffickers. So, like, you know, it's interesting because, like, when you think about it, like, he's killing the bad guys, quote-unquote. He's, he's murdering people who are predatory against other people. It's very Dexter-esque. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. I was like, hmm, interesting. Okay, so he's he's killing all these dudes who are trafficking, doing the drug den thing. Um, so then he met a woman named Maria Aparecida Olympia, and she would later become his fiance. So he found love in at a hopeless some, place. In a hopeless place. Bring <laughs> <laughs> uh, some college back with that song. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, so he found love in a hopeless place. Um, at some point, she actually was brutally murdered by gang members. So we can kind of guess what he did. So he ended up committing a massacre during a wedding that was organized by the gang leader, um, where he and some friends brutally killed seven people and injured 16 others. Months after the massacre, he discovered that the boyfriend of his favorite cousin, who was pregnant, um, by this person, um, but he refused to marry her. So, of course, that made Pedro really pissed, and he went and shot him in revenge. So he's just feeling all sorts of feelings of revenge. Um, so that's what happened. And then, basically, oops. Okay, then, um, you know, it was stated in the research that I found of just certain quotes that he said, was that his favorite way to murder criminals was stabbing or hacking them to death with blades. Which is oddly specific, but... In some instances, he would capture criminals, mostly career criminals and drug dealers, and torture them to death whenever he was motivated by anger instead of thrill. So, on occasion, this part's very interesting, too. He would change his M.O. by adopting the M.O. previously used by his victims during the commission of their own crimes. So, such as when his he killed his father, um, or when he killed seven people in a single day. So, what he would do is he would find out the M.O. of, like, these people who are killing and hurting people, and basically use that. Oh, hey, Gotham. Um, and basically would use that MO to kill those people. So it's kind of interesting nope. how revengey he is in like a bunch of different ways. Um, then next, um, Phil Ho, so Pedro, found out that his father was in prison for murdering and dismembering his mom with a machete, which is horrifying. So, of course. Pedro visited his father in prison and killed him, stabbing him 22 times. <laughs> After the murder, he carved his... As one his... does. As one does. Um, after the murder, he carved his heart out and bit a piece of it. Not sure why, um, but, you know, interesting nonetheless. So, Pedro continued to kill many criminals and was finally arrested on May 24th, 1973. After his arrest, he was placed in a car with another criminal, a rapist, whom he murdered. (laughs) 
During his incarceration, he continued to kill people in prison, claiming the lives of 47 inmates. He sometimes killed inmates because of his past as a killer of criminals, um, and naturally this caused him to be pretty unpopular in prison, and a lot of people hated him. Um, so some of his victims were killed because, according to him, the thrill of killing another criminal was wonderful and satisfying. Um, what's also interesting is that he was officially released on April 24, 2007, but he was arrested again at his house on September 15, 2011, and convicted of riot and false imprisonment. He admitted that his only motivation to be released was the fact he had a girlfriend out of prison, so he wanted to be with her. Um, and he was later sentenced to 128 years in, pres- in prison for these charges. You know, um, and- you think that killing 47 people in prison would, like, continuously extend your sentence, or, like, they charge you with that? Like, you keep killing yeah. everyone, but maybe they didn't want him in there because he kept killing everyone. I don't really know what that thought yeah, process I was. Mean, yeah. It's all like shit's pretty wild in Brazil. Yeah. I don't I don't know what the rules are. <laughs> I've seen some stuff about Brazilian prisons, and they don't seem great. Not yeah, that not any ideal. prison is great, other than, like, I think Swedish prison yes, seems to be, like, yes. the best of the prisons, but... Yeah, it's it's interesting, though. And yeah. what I think is so interesting about him is, like, you know, kind of as we were talking about, like, you know, how people are driven to murder people. It makes sense that, one, he had some brain damage from you know his mom being pregnant with him so like that doesn't start you off on a good note and then two it sounded like the area that he grew up in um was chock full of you know just people doing all sorts of different crimes so you know definitely makes you more on edge with your surroundings and your environment and then two or three is it seems like he went after people that you know affected him or his family like a lot of it was like based in revenge and i think you know kind of like as we were talking about at the beginning with like the philosophical question of you know what would cause you to kill someone in some ways i think we can kind of like understand like for example like how he ended up like killing his dad because she he dismembered his mom's body and you know, all of that kind of stuff. So it's like, okay, I kind of get it. I feel like it's starting off reasonable. And then once you get to the heart biting, it's like, see, that's yes. where you took it too far. Like, if that's you're where the lines cross. so distraught that your father killed your mother, like that. But he had already killed a bunch of people at that point in time. So I think that's where it's like that gray area of like, that one is kind of understandable how someone could be so traumatized about a situation that they would snap in a violent way. Yeah. But I feel like once you're, like, dismembering and, like, let me just take a bite of the heart. Like, obviously you have some other yeah. things much deeper going on because that is crossing past, like, murder just into... Something. Sadistic I... serial killer yeah. territory. And I feel like weird sexually motivated serial killer. I That, that sends off some sexually motivated red flags once you get to cannibalism. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's interesting, though, because, like, there's, like, again, like, little glimmers of things where it's, like, okay, I can kind of get that. Like, if you're, you know, life in prison, it makes sense why 
you might kill a rapist, you know, like, you know, I think there's some things that we can kind of understand, but then it's like, it gets to that point of like, okay, but you did that 47 times. Like, you know what I mean? Just in prison. Just in prison. Just in prison. So yeah, he's, he's an interesting cat. I had not heard of him before. I think a lot of things happen in other countries that we're just not aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but definitely. He's pretty famous. It's good to venture out. Yes. See what's going on in other countries with their crime. Different factors. Yes. Cool. So do you have some tea for us? I do. I have some historical tea. Great. As I tends to go... I tend to tend trend historical whenever I talk about murders and serial killers. I like that, though. So... On November 22nd of 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald assassinated President JFK. Right? But we are not going to be talking about Lee Harvey Oswald. We are going to be talking about Jack Ruby, who killed Lee Harvey Oswald two days after he killed JFK. So... Big thank you to Tim for this idea, because I was having a hard time thinking of one, and damn it, he pulled through yet again. So, he's a bit more of a history nerd than I am, and so very helpful, so thank you for that. Um, So this was so interesting to learn about. So I'm gonna, I'll give you the basics of what happened, and then, in like peak psych nerd fashion, I managed to locate jack ruby's entire prison psychiatric evaluation of which i read all 16 pages and i wanted more but anyways so excited about this (laughs) that's where i got my information which i love because so many times with historical crimes it's really hard to source your information and figure out what's true or not true at least in this case this is a document that was released by the Dallas Police Department, so it is his official record. That being said, that does not mean that all of it is true. I have read plenty of police reports that have some strange stuff or opinions on there, but as far as we know, this is the best, most reliable information about Jack Ruby we can get. Also, some direct quotes that I'm going to share just because they're funny. Perfect. The humor element. But, basically what happened is Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested the day he assassinated JFK. They were, two days later, they were transferring him to a different prison. And Jack Ruby drove into town. He had his pet Dashin Sheba who he left in the car, allegedly, while he committed this crime, which leads many people to believe that he thought he would be perceived as a hero and would not be arrested for doing that because he left his precious dog, who I guess he used to joke as his wife. Like, he called his dog his wife because he was so attached to his dog. Um, Which is weird. Maybe that was a common joke then. I don't know. Little strange, but clearly he was very attached to this dog. Did he also have a wife? He did not, no. Okay, I was going to say, I'd feel really offended if I was his wife. <laughs> like, if Nick's, like, talking to the pigs like, you're my wife, you're going to be like, I am right here. <laughs> love of my life, and he's not talking about me. He's in bed Harsh. with both pigs, the loves of my life, and you're like, cool, I guess I'll just go take a walk or something. Yeah, um, but, basically, he walks in, 
Key was kind of, they were just in this area. There's a pretty famous picture of this actually happening. And he just took out a gun and shot Lee Harvey Oswald in the gut. Lee Harvey Oswald did die. I think that in and of itself has contributed. I know I've talked about the conspiracy theories of the JFK assassination, which are rich and fascinating. But I think this also contributed quite a bit to it because Lee Harvey Oswald was killed so soon after the assassination that there wasn't time to really figure out all of the information about what happened, his motivations. Typically you have to do repeated interviewing because people who haven't undergone a trial are generally not super forthcoming about information on their crimes. You usually have to re-interview them later. And we missed out on that opportunity, which has contributed. A lot of people believe that Jack Ruby, because of his connection to the police, did assassinate Lee Harvey Oswald as part of a government cover-up. So, I'm not going to go into that because, I mean, I don't know. But I will tell you a lot <laughs> about our friend Jack Ruby and the many many, many, many factors that are a bit of a red flag in his psychological history because, my God, there's a lot. Yay. So he was born on April 25th in the early 1900s, and I only remember that because that's also my birthday, so we have that in common, and that's pretty much where the list of things we have in common ends. <laughs> right there. He was born, like, 80 years before I was. Cool. Um, Great. Right off the bat... He is talking a ton about all of the fights that he's been in where he lost consciousness starting from a young age. So at that point in time, we're talking brain injuries. Pretty much any time you lose consciousness because of a head injury, you are likely to have some level of brain damage. Not always a lot, right? But concussions damage your brain and any concussion that's bad enough for you to actually lose consciousness is not a good thing for you long term. Um, one of which happened because, uh, Jack Ruby is from Chicago. I didn't know Originally, that. right? So, I guess we also have that in common, except I'm not from Chicago. Just Chicago land, in general. But, uh, one of the fights involved him and two plainclothes police officer while he was scalping tickets outside of Soldier Field and got hit in the head with a gun and lost consciousness. He tried to sue the city of Chicago and it did not go well. It was dismissed. He had scabies as a teen. They mention it, so I'm just gonna throw it out there in his history. And <laughs> bless you. Oh, bless you. He had, per his own admission, six to seven bouts of gonorrhea during his life. Now, that blows. Just for context, in his many cases of gonorrhea, I'm gonna throw out how he discussed his gonorrhea. He yes. said, let me find the direct quote. There we are. When questioned about it, he makes a rather incongruous remark. I was always very clever about protecting myself. I used fish skins, and I often carried my own syringe and medicine. So this is someone who was super prepared to not get gonorrhea. However... Wait, would he wrap fish skins around his dick? I think that's like an old-timey condom. Oh, this is the first I've heard. The history okay. of condoms is rich and terrifying. Starting in, e okay. e in the Egyptian times, women would put crocodile dung up their vagina like, to yes. a diaphragm <laughs> to prevent pregnancy. People have undergone intense lengths throughout time 
what an age we live in to have so many birth control options that do not involve animal skins. Um, intestines also common historically. So I'm assuming that there was some sort of fish available. Kate is nodding. I'm assuming. Yes. She, I mean, Kate, she al agrees. Kate also knows a lot about history. So I haven't, I didn't feel like Googling that because some things you can't unsee. And I We should do a deep dive into this. A deep dive. I don't know how it pertains to psychology, but it's very interesting. The history to me. of birth control. I mean, why the yeah. hell not? Why I not? think it would be great. But. When asked why he had so many infections if he was so repaired, he said the girls would throw me off. So, dude, like, the girls didn't throw you off, you just didn't want to use your fish skins, and here we are. Come on, like, that's True. totally, that is some women-blaming nonsense right there. But when I read that, I laughed so hard, because uh, he sounds a bit sassy. Not condoning anything sassy. he does, but he sounds real snarky throughout this interview. And I just like the whole, like, well, I was so prepared. Well, how did you get seven cases of gonorrhea if you're so prepared? The girls threw it's me off. It's not working out it's for just you. like, well, clearly your preparedness has not served you well. Because that seems to be a lot of cases of gonorrhea. I've never read the statistics, but six or seven seems to be quite a bit of gonorrhea. Um, it's a whole lot of gonorrhea. It's a whole lot. That being said, he was able to treat himself with antibiotics multiple times. Um, however... Because uh, he had the syringes with him, right? He had the syringes. Also, he did say something about having had his most recent case of gonorrhea right around the time of when he killed Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, I honestly have no idea if frequent gonorrhea infections can have any impact on your psychological stability or any of the side effects of any of the antibiotics that they would have used at the time. Um, I wonder. Because obviously we know all about syphilis in the brain, but... <laughs> syphilis does a lot. Gonorrhea, I'm genuinely not... I don't know. I'm not all that sure about. I know a lot of STDs if left untreated. That being said, he obviously treated them but repeated infections, I mean, also just goes to indicate risk-taking behavior. Um, yeah, true. Not slut-shaming anyone, but if you are that prepared to avoid getting gonorrhea, when we're looking at, like, this would have been 1930s, 40s, historically speaking, that level of preparedness does imply some risk-taking behaviors that he knew enough about himself to know he would pretty much be at risk at the drop of a hat whenever. So that can speak to a potentially some risk-taking behavior, which we will get more into because there is a lot in there. Um, he did report a history of depression. The most severe episode was in 1952. He, this is a direct quote, he said, I hibernated and became panicky for a number of months. I had no desire for anything. I did not care if I lived or died. I thought about committing suicide a lot. I couldn't sleep or eat. Thought about being a complete failure. I stayed at the Little Cotton Bowl Hotel and didn't do anything. So that's a, that's a significant depressive episode at that point in for time. Sure. He claims he never attempted suicide, but he did contemplate it quite a bit. And after this period... He did have a strong um, surge of energy and productiveness where he really threw himself Weird. into business. 
after the episode ended, which led the writer of this psychiatric evaluation to indicate that they did see hypomanic tendencies as well following okay. depressive episodes. So we're looking at a potential bipolar diagnosis on that the makes basis of this. He said he had multiple depressive episodes, but none as bad as this one. Um, in his childhood, let's go all the way back. He moved between foster homes quite frequently um, and missed a lot of school. He claims that, so he was arrested for truancy when he was 11 years old. That was his first arrest. Um, and he claims that they didn't have the clothing to make him comfortable enough to go to school, which was his reason to not attend school, which again leads to poverty. He was also growing up in the Great Depression, so that wouldn't be abnormal. He also claimed they didn't have books, didn't have any of the things that they needed. Um, but he was severely truant. He finished the eighth grade, he said, around 17 years old, and then did like half a year of high school and quit. So he did not really follow through on his education. He started working around eight, where he was... Aww selling shopping bags on the street with his sister Ava. She claimed that he uh, was really good at business, so he would buy the shopping bags for five cents and send them for t sell them for ten cents. Uh, the dad caught them, slapped his little girl, but uh, Jack escaped before his dad could hit him, came back, pretended he had nothing to do with it. Yes. So, again, seeing some things, I don't think most eight-year-olds would have that level of business savvy. Most eight-year-olds are like yeah. solid lemonade stand type of yeah. situation, right? Not really. Like the upcharge, like, you know, like, they praise that heavily on Shark Tank. <laughs> he would have crushed Shark Tank is all yes. we're saying. Um, so kind of some stuff early on, you're seeing some behavioral indicators that would be atypical. Um, as a teen, he lost his job due to knocking out his manager in a fist fight. Oh. So, that was like when he was 16 or 17, per his siblings. So again, his history of fighting and aggression started real, real young. Uh, he moved to scalping tickets at that point in time. Oh, I thought you meant literal scalping people. I was like, wow, no, that escalated. <laughs> no, as far as we know, he never scalped anyone. Great. Just to clarify that fun fact not scalping tickets not people um he moved to california became really close with this one lawyer the lawyer was then murdered um and he was so distraught that he just kind of like left where he was at but he was born jacob rubinsky and didn't have a middle name and he wanted to make sure he always remembered his friend so he took on the middle name of leon after his friend who was murdered the murderer was acquitted so right there some significant trauma with a close yeah. friend being murdered um this isn't quite like a narrative story because the psychoval like pieced it together differently but this is like his work history um he was drafted into the army in 1943 and then he was honorably discharged in 46. He denied any negative experiences in the army, denied any trauma during his time there. Really no, nothing significant from that other than um, he was trained to be an aircraft engineer, I believe. So he was working on airplanes. Um, then 
he started what in 1947 started what became his business and what he was known for which is night clubs is the way he worded it um reasonably sure more of strip clubs contextually speaking when he's talking about all of the girls that would perform um (laughs) so some uh scandalous business for 1947 so there you go with that um he described his father as a brutal alcoholic who beat all of his children at some point severely enough to break their fingers for like touching his tools so he grew up with a significant amount of child abuse and his mom was involuntarily committed at the elgin community mental hospital no way right um for that's very close to our house (laughs) if you don't if you're not from around here (laughs) that's right nearby um for depression so he does have a family history of mental illness he has six siblings um he reports several of them also have drinking problems many of them have been psychiatrically hospitalized and all of his siblings report that he was both of his parents favorites that his dad praised how often he would fight other people and his young thing to praise your child on right and so it seems like the behavior was encouraged quite significantly throughout his childhood but we also have a significant amount of trauma in combination with head injuries not a good combo never as we discuss as we always discuss um so then some other interesting things there's reported aggression from childhood he strongly denies gambling or drug use um, he talks a lot about the Jewish religion and how important it was to his family. His parents were Polish immigrants, um, Polish Jewish immigrants. He, and so he talked a lot about being raised. His dad went to the synagogue twice a day, every day. So it was very significant, um, in his life and childhood. It is one of the first things he did after JFK was assassinated was try to go to the synagogue. Um, even though he had not been going regularly. In a very strange part of the interview, he goes on a bit of a tirade about how repulsive masturbation is. Because they were asking (laughs) about, like, his any sexually aggressive behavior. So he describes masturbation as repulsive. Uh, Says he never did it until he was 16, and even then he moved straight on to women. Um... Uh. Okay. Yeah. Says he started having sex multiple times a week at age 17 and makes a strong note that he always maintained his dominance. So, pretty significant red flag that he may have been a sexual sadist. He does not go into any specifics, but um, another thing, and this is pure speculation based on his quotes, but he talks about how he always maintained dominance, Would he would never pay a woman for sex because she would he would feel like he wasn't wanted if he had to pay for it but he also talked about um how like sometimes women would owe him money and they'd give him an iou and also have sex with him so kind of like a gray area on whether or not he was sleeping with women for money but he also talks about how um Masturbation is repulsive as his homosexuality makes very clear that he is not gay and always maintains his dominance with women. Um, (laughs) Slight red flag that there could have been some same-sex attraction that was happening um, along with deep-seated homophobia. Again, that is entirely speculation. There is no evidence to back that up whatsoever. 
But I think I back up your theories, though. I, I think that's pretty good. I think a lot of times, the more aggressively people feel the need to defend that they're not homosexual, the more likely it is that they at least somewhat lean that way or have had some thoughts that they find particularly distressing um he also talked about fighting people if they ever called him soft or and then he listed several slurs for the homosexual community um so he does bring it up in several places where it is not asked at all oh yeah that's kind (laughs) of so that's why with certain things the history of fighting other men they're And, like, he specifically talks about how he goes out of his way in restrooms to make sure that no men think that he's coming on to them. So, there is some... I don't think that's, like, a natural thought. Like, I think if I called Nick, like, hey, like, do you feel like you have to protect yourself in the bathroom? He'd be like, no, like, what? So, historically speaking... Public restrooms are a place where men would meet in order to engage in sex in certain locations. Um, Still a thing. So there is certain, um, you know, it's like the it does happen. Again, if your main concern anytime you use a restroom that somebody might think that you want to sleep with them does suggest some internalized homophobia and also knowledge of the community if you know specifically everything that one would have to do to indicate that and going out of your way to not indicate that bit ah see we're getting some stuff on the history of birth control we're gonna have to look into this thanks everyone um very excited (laughs) we're gonna learn some stuff but again the fact that he repeatedly brings it up um like at one point in time he also randomly states that he has no problem with I'm just gonna stay historical word for the black community that is not appropriate but that is the language that is used in this article I'm not gonna say it but was not PC language where he's like well I don't have a problem with them but the girls will never perform for them which is like again that's not (laughs) what was asked at all so it is kind of like there is some strong defensive behavior happening on a lot of different fronts which we could read into um but nonetheless it does sound like he at the very least has some sexually sadistic tendencies and was just trying to like word it in a polite 1960s sort of way to be like but i keep my dominance it's like okay that makes me more worried like nobody was asking about your dominance they just asked you if you slept with the dancers that worked for you that was the question he's like but i keep my dominance it's like dude no one asked you um so it is really interesting to see some of the answers are so defensive and so intense he also strongly idolized the police um and knew them and worked with them he again he owned strip clubs he or nightclubs where women performed so and like he did have some pretty heavy involvement with the Dallas Police Department. That was one of the first things he said to the police after he shot Lee Harvey Oswald. Was like, you know me, I'm Jack Ruby, I'm not gonna fight you. You don't have to tackle me. Like, he was pretty much like, you guys know who I am. So he was very yeah. involved. Um, he also was, admittedly per this, involved in um, gun running to Cuba. 
at one point in time, which some people, again, feels like it feeds into the conspiracy theory behind the JFK assassination, that he would have been a patsy or a fall guy to actually kill Lee Harvey Oswald, so Lee Harvey Oswald didn't say anything or do anything. That's kind of the conspiracy theory part of it, um, which there's so many conflicting reports. And, but, you know, he loved the police. He was close with them. He apparently regularly attended the funerals of all the police officers who died in Dallas. And at one point in time gave the highest donation, a donation of $150 in the 60s, which is quite a big chunk of change for police funerals. So he really, he was really involved. He had somewhere between five and six previous arrests and like casually mentions that he was once framed for murder. Um, it's like the police were trying to frame me and then it's not mentioned again in the document so I'm not really sure what was happening with that Uh, but super casual to bring that up and he became really really sick in early November Um, he had pneumonia possibly gonorrhea was on really strong antibiotics so this was the month that the murder happened in so his story of when JFK was assassinated, was that he was at a newspaper office trying to sell um, ad space for his club. But he got into a fight and was yelling at people because he was upset that the newspaper had printed a whole ad talking about how JFK's visit was not welcome in Texas. So he was really upset that that was in there, um, and that's a whole historical thing, but he was already upset, and then he found out what happened... Um, He said that he needed to leave Dallas. He got really upset, shut down his club. Um, A quote that he said was, It was the greatest tragic loss the city has suffered. There was the greatest magnitude of feeling. I was carried away in mourning more than when my father died or if my brother had been killed. So he claims that JFK's assassination was like the most traumatic thing that could have happened, that he was so distraught. He went to the police station to see what was going on. He happened to have a... He had gone the day before pretending to be in the newspaper when Lee Harvey Oswald was there. He came in, but he had left his gun in the car. He came in the next day, had his gun on him, and got so enraged when Lee Harvey Oswald appeared that he shot him. Um, The timing was also pretty intense, where, like... Lee Harvey Oswald was supposed to have already been transferred, but it got delayed, and if it hadn't gotten delayed, he wouldn't even have been there at the same time. So there's kind of a lot going on there. Um, He also at one point said that he killed Lee Harvey Oswald so that Jackie Kennedy would not have to undergo the trauma of a um, court, like a trial because she'd already seen her husband be murdered. And he's like, well, she shouldn't have to go to a trial because of this scum. Um, He calls Lee Harvey Oswald an animal and a communist at multiple different times in different interviews. Was pretty negative on him. Um, And then he he was ultimately sentenced to death, but died of cancer a couple years later. So, just like some other interesting things... um, I did find a source that I cannot verify anywhere, but I'm just going to throw it out there, that there was a woman that he dated for around a decade on and off that allegedly 
interviewed at one point in time and said that he strongly disliked JFK, that he never said that he was pretty negative on him, never indicated that he cared enough that that would explain his rage, and that she thinks there is absolutely no way that he killed, um, that he killed Lee Harvey Oswald just out of the trauma of the assassination, but I can't, I can't verify that anywhere. They use a stage name, not a real name, so I can't even verify that they're talking about the girl he actually did date. So there's, like, some suggested stuff, but you can't prove it at all. Um, So there's a lot of, like, conspiracy theory stuff happening. Um, But ultimately, you know, I don't know why he would have done this, but if we look at his history of instability, him already being pretty sick at the time, he was on a stimulant called Preludin, which is no, hmm. which is not. They don't sell it in the states anymore. And also drinking the day of the murder. So it is entirely possible that his history of possibly bipolar disorder, of depression, and some you know hypomania in combination with drug use and al- alcohol use, and a history of trauma and everything else he had working against him, just genuinely could have led to him being really upset about this event, like, this cultural trauma and act out purely because of that, or there could be other reasons that he never shared, but he he does have a lot of psychological indicators that he would murder someone. It's this specific one where, like, it's it's confusing how it actually happened that way, but it's not... Like, what the motivation really was. Right, you know. But it's also not so convincing that you're like, oh, for sure it was a conspiracy. Like, some people with a history of instability who are also using drugs and alcohol can be so strongly affected by something that they do snap a bit, and that could have been what happened here. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it could be truly, like, a case of very low impulse control. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And he also was so involved in, like, the criminal enterprise in Dallas with, like, these clubs and some drug and alcohol stuff. And so there's, like, a lot and, like, strong history of getting into fights, strong history of impulse control issues. So there's a lot happening here with him. That's a wild story. Right? Good job digging up all that info. Thank you. I was so excited when I found that. It was super cool. Yeah. Also, if anybody needs to do research on Dallas, Texas, the University of Texas has some great archives with public documents, so strongly recommend checking that out cool. for all of your Texas-related research needs <laughs> that we all have. All the Texas research we have. <laughs> Now all of our episodes are just going to be strongly Texas-based because they've got good archives. <laughs> I've only been one time to Texas. I've never been to Texas. <laughs> it's cool. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. Take my word for it. <laughs> Thank you. I believe you. Yeah, they got good food. Anyway. <laughs> nice. Um. Well. Should we, we can wrap up like we normally we do? We can wrap up like we normally do. So, we encourage all of our listeners to follow our social media accounts, Spooky Psychology St. Charles on Facebook, and then Lauren, your Instagram is? Lauren, L-A-U-R-E-N, underscore, Malika, M-O-L-L-I-C-A, L-M-F-T, 
at Instagram. At Instagram. Mine is Megan Baker LCSW. You can get information about the podcast and other stuff on those accounts. You can also feel free to reach out to us. We love to hear from you guys if you have any thoughts or feelings or episode suggestions. Um, and then, Lauren, do you have any good shit going on in the world that you would like to talk about today? Yes. Um, so I actually, like, saw this, like, story, I think it was either on or the day after Father's Day, but I thought it was really sweet. So, um, do you know what palitas are? No. So they're, like, um, they're basically, like, popsicles. okay. So, um, in the city, a lot of times there's, it's basically, like, an ice cream man. It's, like, a palitas man. So, usually, like, an older man, he, like, pushes, like, a palitas cart and, like, sells them. And I guess on Father's Day this year, I think this happened in Chicago. It may not have. Um, but somebody went and, like, bought all of his palitas so he could go spend Father's Day at home with his family. And he was, like, sobbing. And I was sobbing, too. Adorable. <laughs> I know. So I was like, that's cute. so sweet. So cute. Wonderful. It's your good shit. Uh, my good shit is all of our listeners. Because we are... Like we said, at one year since our first live show, we're at almost 11,000 downloads over 16 episodes, which I'm going to call pretty good. Pretty good there. Big shout out to all of our patrons. Thank you for- Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for funding this journey of ours. We appreciate you guys. Yes. And if you guys ever have, you know, like requests or certain things that you want to hear about, let us know because we have- an Excel document going of all of our ideas. We do have an Excel document of all of our ideas. Some stranger than others, but we constantly add to it, and we'll eventually get to all of them. So please send us your ideas. We do love to hear them. And should we right. end the recording part of it? Yeah. All right. So thank I'm you recording. for staying spooky with us. That's how we usually end. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Bye-bye.